Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding on air live with Mr. Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all of our content that we put out on the internet. Go to focuscompounding.com to get access to all of Jeff's writings going all the way back to 2005. How do I know that they're going all the way back to 2005? Well, guess what? Who do you think updated the website going all the way back to 2005? Yours truly. It took forever. My fingers were hurting, but I did it for the home team. So go to focuscompounding.com to get access to all of those old write-ups and blog posts. Timeless investing wisdom can be read at focuscompounding.com. So what are we doing here, Jeff? What's Focus Compounding? Well, if I could give a little pitch really quick, uh, we are a investment manager, for those that do not know, uh, based out of Dallas, Texas. And we are focused on identifying high quality companies in pockets of the market where large pools of capital uh, cannot or will not consider. And we believe that fishing in this overlooked pond presents an opportunity to earn outsized returns for our investors. Uh, overlooked, Jeff, you came up with that term for the strategy. Mm -hmm. What does that word mean to you? Um, well, we tend to focus on micro cap stocks, so small market caps, but also stocks that have a uh, low share turnover. So generally stocks that trade less. And sometimes that means stocks that are uh, less liquid as a result of that, what we just talked about. But mostly the smallest and least traded stocks uh, usually uh, more boring stocks than the sorts of things that you see trading options and things like that. Less likely to be on major exchanges um, and in a few cases, less likely to file with the SEC. That's right. So we got overlooked stocks, low share turnover percentage, low beta, low institutional ownership. Uh, if you listen to this podcast often and you're familiar with what we do, uh, you know all of this. Uh, predictable, solid industry, solid competitive position in the industry, and then, of course, the price that we're willing to pay. I always say, think a PE of 13. So looking for high-quality companies in an overlooked pocket of the market and, of course, paying a price for that valuation that we think is cheap. And our version of cheap is, you know, generally speaking, think a PE of 13. Uh, we need to know that the free cash flow yield plus growth will be higher than 10% a year. Uh, we do run a fund. And the portfolio manager is Jeff Gannon. Uh, minimum investment, $2 million, zero management fee, 15% of the profits. Uh, that's as economical as they come in the hedge fund land. And if you can't hit the minimum investment of $2 million for the fund, well, we do have managed accounts where the minimum investment is $250,000. So reach out to me at andrewfocuscompounding.com. I think what we're doing is different than other people. It's different probably than what you're doing. Uh, so if you want to start the conversation, reach out to me and we could uh, talk about what we are doing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. So today is September 6, 2022. The S&P 500 is down 18% year to date. The 10-year yield, I feel like every single week, it just continues to rise 3.345%. Crude oil at 87 bucks and natural gas, 8 spot, 3 Seven has the rise in yields been uh, surprising to you, Jeff? I feel like we talk about yields 
pretty much on every podcast, but I think it's uh, pretty interesting what's going on in uh, the yield market and the yield curve and stuff like that, the bond market. Has the, has the move been pretty surprising to you? I mean, it's been a pretty drastic move in a very short period of time. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this to the end of last year about the Federal Reserve and whether it was um, going to move faster than the market expected. And I think we said then as well, they might just constantly move up expectations, do a little bit more than people expect, and um, people's expectations will keep adjusting throughout the year. That's pretty much what happened, you know. Um, I think we're not that far from what seemed possible when we were talking a year ago, and it did kind of happen by continuously moving a little bit uh, faster, larger increments than the market was expecting, and the market adjusts to that, so that's what you saw in the moving yields mostly. That's basically all Fed fund stuff. So the yield curve is still inverted, but with the 10-year drastically rising, I would say we're starting to reach more of a flattened curve, even though it is still inverted. It's not as inverted as it was. Um, so, I mean, how do you kind of think about that? Uh, because with higher rates from like a lending perspective for banks, you could still have higher rates and still have a normal sloping, healthy yield curve, right? It's just at a higher level. Is that something that you tend to think about because we do invest in banks and think a lot about interest rates and their relationship to lending? Yeah, well, if that happened, what you just said, uh, it would be a lot better for banks. So banks would earn a lot more than people are used to in the last 10 to 15 years now. Um, so far, that's you know, it's not clear that is what's going to happen because of how far inverted the curve is. Um, I mean, over how long a portion of the curve it's inverted. Uh, so we'll see. Maybe in the next recession or something when you see, you're coming out of that when you see uh, higher rates, but uh, you don't in that recovery that you see higher rates, but you have a steeper yield curve because I don't know if that will happen before the next recovery. I mean, historically, it hasn't really. That's how you get yield curves to uninvert and become steeply... Um, uh, benefiting banks is that you have some sort of economic recovery. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I was reading um, Paul Volcker's uh, memoirs or his book mm -hmm. that he wrote. And it's interesting how politics could play into this. I forget, was it Reagan that was in office? And they basically set up a meeting, not at the White House. They didn't want it on the itinerary. It was basically like a one-off meeting with him. And I don't know if they said it without saying it, or they did just blatantly tell him. But what he wrote about in the book was they basically said, don't raise interest rates higher because he was worried about like the political ramifications behind doing that and what that effect would be on his administration. I'm kind of curious. I mean, here we are. I mean, election is two week, two years out. How much do you think that plays into it? Or is Powell still going to you know, keep his mojo? Because I think he did a great job or a good job, or at least they were decisive, I should say, through COVID. Mm. Do you, is that something that you think about how all of that plays into his job? I mean, personally, I wouldn't want his job because no matter what he does, mm. someone's always going to be upset at him. And their mandate is inflation and the unemployment rate. And um, there's a lot of what they would call second or third or fourth order effects that come off of changing the policy to affect those things. So is that something that you typically think about ever? I think it was a major factor in uh, 
previous inflations. You know, there's a fiscal and a monetary aspect to it. In the United States and a lot of developed countries in this century, uh, the the central bank is independent of the spending authority, the the Congress in this case. Um, But it's what they do in both areas that matters. And so right now the um, Fed has gotten slightly, or will with its next interest rate move, um, gotten slightly restrictive. It was loose until now. It was... um, And the... Fiscal authority is still going to be significantly loose, um, significantly stimulative in terms of how large the deficit is there. Even if you look at estimated deficit being a lot lower than it was in the past couple of years, it's higher than almost any year. It's like one or two years since uh, World War II that are at all close to this. So uh, what can happen is you can have one going in one direction and one in the other, and that may make it less effective what you're trying to do. Um, may also make it easier to do your job sometimes, uh, because if the, uh, they, you may feel, let's say if the fed is raising rates a lot, you may feel very free to run a large deficit. Um, I think what we've talked about on this podcast a long time ago, uh, when people ask about things like investing in different countries, uh, I don't think that politics in terms of the current, uh, how many seats does each party have? who's uh, the president or the prime minister of some country, what party is in power, is all that important usually. But I think the overall political culture is important. And I think there's had been, it may be changing, but there had been a major shift in that from when I started investing to today, which is that both monetary thinking, generally the consensus, and fiscal thinking, the consensus of it among both parties really, um had become much less disciplined in both cases that they would consider things they had not considered as possible reactions so that when you had a recession or some sort of crisis, the level of extreme measures that might be taken exceeded what would have been the case uh, when I started investing in the late 1990s, which is very, the consensus then was very, um, Disciplined, very balanced budget, very um, uh, raise rates as you see signs that inflation is about to happen. Don't wait for it to actually happen, that sort of thing. Um, And I think those attitudes changed. So that means there might be a much higher um, risk of regularly seeing inflation in the future because of that. But it also means at some point that that may change political attitudes, right? Because at some point, inflation is as much a loser for a politician looking to be reelected as um, unemployment. Certainly they wouldn't rather trade another point lower in unemployment right now for a point higher in inflation. And the other thing to keep in mind for politicians, because you forget this one we're in periods where there is an inflation, is uh, in- unemployment ultimately affects directly a very small portion of the, popul- of the voting population. Uh, inflation affects everyone who votes. So it depends on the election, but take something like midterm elections. There could be a lot of older people voting. That unemployment is not a major factor for them, but inflation is a major factor. There could be lots of people voting who wouldn't normally lose their jobs in a recession. Um, So at a certain level, inflation becomes a big problem across the board. Particularly, it's a bigger issue for, you know, independence. Um, So, and that, that can be a big factor in some elections. 
I think it's much more likely to be a big political issue in the presidential election that you mentioned because you just have a higher turnout than in a midterm election, which is usually driven more by the uh, registered voters who are of one of the two parties. Usually uh, independents don't turn out in really big numbers for a and truly undecided voters for a midterm election so much unless there's kind of extreme reasons for why they would do that. But a lot of people turn out for a presidential election. So you just have a more representative vote of the actual population in those. Why do you think the attitude has changed since you started investing from like a monetary and fiscal policy standpoint? Well, I think it changes for the same reason that it changes for investors' risk appetite or something like that. What happened is certain policies were adopted that might have seemed dangerous at times in the past, and they didn't have immediate ill effects at all. So, for instance, you know, we don't get into this of all the different theories of this stuff, but for instance, do deficits matter? Um, no. If, if you have a history of hundreds of years of balancing your budget always, it doesn't. you can run a very, very large deficit, and it shouldn't cause any adjustment in terms of inflation expectations in bond markets in the future. Um, I always give the example of the um, Roman Republic, Roman Empire, which debased its currency from time to time when fighting wars in the first few centuries AD, but especially in the last century BC. And um, people presumably knew that. We have no reason to believe that they didn't know that the con the um, metal content of their coins were going down. There are money changers and people who probably um, knew that quite well. Why wasn't there consistently high inflation in periods in which there was just more money printing? They, they, they printed more money. That is, they used the same metal content, broke it down to more coins. And they uh, spent it immediately because they're spending on war. So that's very inflationary. And there'd be these short spikes of inflation, like used to get all the time in wartime, but they didn't last. Um, they didn't last because it was restored regularly to the previous standard or at worst to a standard slightly lower than that. And then this money traded hands next to each other, saying the same things on the coins, some more pure than others, and it didn't bother people. Um, then... They started to run a constant fiscal deficit that it was clear they weren't going to fix, and they printed money consistently at that point. Um, when they got to that point, they probably averaged about 5% inflation for two centuries in a row, 5% uh, annually. I don't think they even averaged 1% in the two centuries before that. So it can happen simply because you could say, oh, well, let's run the numbers and see if they print too much money. And that's possible, but what also happened was just a change in the attitude of what was temporary versus what was likely to be permanent ongoing. You got um, less inflation really out of large, huge, gigantic deficits in World War II than you did out of a period of a decade and a half in the 60s through the you know very early 80s. Um, why did you have so much more the second time around? There could be all these explanations of shocks and why this happened and stuff. I don't know. There's not a lot of evidence that shocks have much of a permanent change on the impact of inflation. It's very short-term in one time. Um, the more likely explanation is that there was a, a fear of a change in the policies of some governments, United States and others, um, that were that's one thing to run a deficit in the middle uh, for three years only uh, of a war versus running it for that period or longer, even if it's a much smaller deficit, um, 
for general social programs and things that are always going to be there, right? So if you're you're fighting a, um, sure people remember the Vietnam War, but if you're fighting a war on poverty, on uh, medical access for people, things like that, those are permanent problems that you're going to face all the time. Um, so if you're saying that you're trying to raise people's standard of living or something, that's something that people might fear that you spend on all the time, right? Um, so th- there can be a difference, even if it seems one time and stuff, between um, canceling student loan debt, for instance, and fighting a war, even if they both happen to cost the same amount, because the expectations may be that debt cancellation becomes a recurrent feature. You know, I mentioned Rome. It was a recurrent feature there, you know. So once it was can- debt cancellation was done once, it ended up being done quite frequently. Um, each time was a special case. But, you know, it ends up happening. So my point is, I don't think this would be a really big issue if, say, one party was entirely focused on let's re- let's balance the budget, let's get rid of deficits. And one was let's spend deficits don't matter at all. It becomes an issue if large portions of both parties um, are in favor of the same sorts of policies. And I think that's also true on the monetary side of things. Um, I don't think that you'd be too concerned about what monetary policy was if you knew that the votes were, um, you know, a split decision with one or two votes deciding one way or the other. But if you have a fairly good idea that there's widespread agreement on certain things, then it becomes a bigger issue. Um, There's been a much bigger adjustment in terms of monetary thinking. But I have to say, you know, I read, I don't know, like three books or whatever on the Fed and uh in the period just before they were raising these rates. So they were all out of date. And it is remarkable how much they talk about the zero bound and about the idea that inflation is coming in lower than should be suggested by how tight the labor market is for a period of several years. That's before COVID. They're talking about that in 2017 and and, and um, beyond, but especially then. It's not as clear to me from the data that that's even the case. That's a very short period of time to be worried about it. And when you look at the data, um, there could be lots of reasons why inflation was a bit weaker than you expected for a brief period of time. So to be so worried about that, I think, does make people wonder if there's a a bias in that, you know? Um, The Fed had never waited this long to have sustained inflation like that. So that's just a change from what it was like in the 1990s. You know, in the 1990s, if you saw how tight the labor market was getting, even though you weren't seeing the inflation at all, you'd say, okay, let's let's raise just a little bit now and communicate that we might want to raise even more if this keeps happening. The Fed went the reverse way, saw how things were tightening that normally causes inflation, said, no, let's wait on that. Let's wait to, for, a, you know, the better part of a year to have inflation to make sure it's not going down, and then let's raise rates. So I think... That's what I'm talking about in terms of the, the differences. The, the issue is not what the deficit is in any one year. The, the issue is more like, do you think that a 5% deficit is now the like how you used to think about a 1% or 2% deficit? Do you think, well, there's no reason we should ever get le- down below 5%. If you think that, then that starts to change your thinking, about investors thinking about what it means to own... Um, things denominated in dollars and all of that. Um, right now, of course, the the interest rates in the U.S. are going up so much faster, so much higher than in other comparable countries, 
that you're not going to see an effect of that um, in terms of like currencies and stuff like that because you can get so much uh, better return in nominal terms in the U.S. than in other places. And of course, for foreign investors, they're probably sitting on large gains if they switch to dollars instead of their home currency. But it's it's something you'll see reflected longer term, I think, if if things work out more like they did um, in the period of the 60s and 70s as opposed to the period of the later half of the 40s, you know. Because we're also dealing with, you know, debt levels that are more in line with the levels that you saw after World War II than in line with the very, very low levels that you saw in, um, like, the 1980s or something when inflation last turned around. What were interest rates after World War II? Uh, very low. So I would estimate that corporate long-term yields were lower than, probably lower than they were even in this cycle in the U.S. They're probably record lows. Um, in terms of government bond yields, they're not really um, meaningful because the Fed was doing uh, yield curve control all the time. They were working with the government to manage the cost of the uh, debt to them. So it's basically, it sounds like to me, like you're saying, this is sort of like the boiling frog syndrome. Why do you think their attitude has sort of changed? Because to your point, too, when you're talking about like, oh, running a deficit at 5%, you know, they become more accustomed to that. It sounded like their tone towards inflation the two percent inflation target was almost changing i mean i vividly remember powell at one point basically saying yeah and we got to think about or we do think about is two percent the actual rate should we run a little bit hotter at you know 2.5 mm-hmm. or three percent i mean why do you think that is well that's an issue that comes up a lot when you talk about the zero bound stuff i think it's a um well i think a few things one you know looking historically at the fed and um you know, if they've only officially been doing inflation targeting for a short period of time, and it's only been a feature of any central banks for a fairly short period of a few decades. However, um, if we assume that their policies in the past have been similar to what their policies were now, you know, um, you get an inflation target that's more like 3% than 2%. You don't see evidence in their actual actions that they were targeting 2%. Um, the reason for not doing that, targeting a number so low, is because there is there it's unrealistic to be able to operate below um 0%. So because of that if you want to intentionally run a uh monetary policy that's lower than uh let's say a natural market rate would be as opposed to one that you're imposing on it um then you would run into having to run it into negative territory which you can't realistically do. So because of that, and because, uh, as I mentioned in those books and stuff, it comes up, but I think it's true. Uh, I think the 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 Federal Reserve in the U.S. feels differently than the Central Bank in Japan and doesn't think that it can um, uh, target a specific yield on, like, the 10-year or something like that because it's too big a market. Um, so for that reason, I think that it is helpful to be able to have uh, a rate that's higher on average. So the idea is not to have higher inflation, but simply that having higher inflation would mean nominal rates on average would be higher, which would give you more room to maneuver. I don't really see a problem with having a 3% target if if that was really your target. Um, But I think there's a bias generally. I think there's clearly a bias towards um, inflation versus deflation, meaning that if you had a, whether you had a 2% target or a 3% target, if you had, um, let's say, I have a 2% target, if inflation comes in at 5%, that's not good, but I think you're less concerned than if it came in at negative 
And the fact that that's true would mean that you have a bias. I mean, if you have no bias, then overshooting by either direction would be equally um, as unsatisfactory or as satisfactory to you. Uh, that you know that's not true. They're more concerned about very very low numbers near zero than about somewhat high numbers uh, above two or let's say three. But yeah, and the issue now, of course, is like you know, do they think that three percent is more the number that they only have to get down to? They certainly haven't said that, and I don't think that that's what they're thinking. But it, I mean, that might be what people in the markets are thinking more. It's certainly what I hear from people more. Is that they're not saying let's get inflation down to 2%, but they're th- saying, well, it'll get down to like 3% and the Fed will stop. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, even though we're bottom-up fundamental investors, it's fun to prognosticate about the future and obviously uh, think through and talk about these things, uh, even if we don't let it affect us, right? I mean, I wrote in our uh, quarterly letter to investors that uh, I referenced the Munger quote on generally just thinking about the macro stuff as the weather, just uh, taking the information as you have it and as you receive it and picking your spots, right? I mean, you don't need to be a fundamental investor and uh, speculate about the future on macro information. No, usually you just need to know what the current situation is and apply it to the company you're looking at. So you don't get confused and think that if oil is $150 a barrel or $50 a barrel, an oil company is equally attractive you know there might be a reason why it looks so good or bad this year same thing with rates and banks or any of these absolutely so we could talk about uh actual fundamental bottom-up investing uh the first eight things to look at when researching a stock so there's more information in this presentation so if you're watching on youtube check the show notes if you're watching or listening on Whatever podcast app, uh, check the show notes. I will have this presentation uploaded. And then I did a call for stocks, and we could do some snap judgments if we have time. If we run over, we will dedicate the next podcast to that. But uh, wanting to keep everything to real life investing. So pulling stocks is something that is great to do. Uh, But the first eight things to look at when researching a stock... uh, First thing that we do, which we've talked about on the podcast, I think may surprise a lot of people, is check the long-term stock performance. So of the chart. Um, So, you know, what's the annual return in the stock over 20, 30, or 40 years? This is something that we always do. And Jeff, do you want to explain why we always uh, typically do that? Yeah, and specifically, I would say look at the chart, like you said. I get a lot of questions about you know, from this point to this point now, perform the S&P or whatever, you can see from a chart a better idea of um, how it did and why. I don't think the actual compounding or return is all that important. But the question is, did it create value, right? Um, and then also get some idea of why the chart looks the way that it does over decades we're talking about. Um, did it perhaps uh, come public at a really high price? And that's the explanation for why it looks like that. Um, uh, or is it a really low price today or something like that? But putting those aside, the return in the stock should be comparable to if you charted the S&P against it over a long period of time. If it's a lot worse than the S&P charted against it, uh, or really much worse at all, then it hasn't really created value. Uh, here in this chart where you're showing Microsoft um, since the 1990s against the S&P, it's not really important if Microsoft is up 10,000% or if it's up 2,000%. 
you know, it's nice if it's up 10,000 instead of 2,000, but remember that's only <laughs> five, t- that's only five times there. It could have a lot to do with the price to start at the price it ended at. But the important thing is that, is it about the level of the S and P higher, lower here? You can see it's a lot higher. So that's a very good return. I bet you would know that about Microsoft, but you might not know that about frost or about America's car Mart or other companies that are also up. Um, by differing amounts, but up a lot since uh, about the same time period, probably. So, yeah, you have about the same time period. And, uh, yeah, so, like, uh, America's Car Mart, we said, uh, we said uh, Microsoft is up, what, 8,000-some percent? Yeah. Yeah, and America's Car Mart is up 18,000-some percent. So, obviously, that would be a tiny, tiny nothing uh, cap stock at the time. It was probably a few million dollar market cap or something. But... It gives you the idea that Microsoft and America's Commerce have both created tremendous amounts of value. Um, in dollar terms, Microsoft a lot more. In percentage terms, America's Commerce a bit more. Um, but they both did it over, you know, uh, you know, 25, 30 years, whatever we're looking at there. And how much of this do you take it a step further and be like, okay, a lot of this return was the result of multiple expansion um, do you break it down further and sort of think through that? Because, I mean, if CarMart traded at the multiple that Microsoft traded at, I mean, these numbers would look even better. Correct. Yes. Um, yeah, I I do that a little bit. In cases like what we're talking about here, I don't. Because the truth is, if something is up 10 times more than the S&P, um, unless I picked very, very specific years, and I know it's very expensive today, and I happen to have, it happens to have the first data point it has as being very, very cheap. Unless that happened, it's almost impossible that numbers that large could really come from uh, multiple expansion and contraction. So that's just a question of creating a lot of value. So in those cases, we know those companies create a lot of value. When we get more charts that look more similar, uh, the S&P and the stock, uh, then it becomes an issue. Um, so let's try like Walmart, maybe that one will be closer between the two because I don't think that company's performed too well since the 1990s when this chart starts. Yeah, there Mm -hmm. we go. SP at 851%, Walmart at 885%. Right. And so there's a period there where, uh, Walmart does not do, uh, as well. And that has a major effect on it. So if we started the the time period um, a little bit late, you know, if it started in the later 1990s, let's say, then the chart, yeah, so instead of starting in 92, starting in 98, let's say. Um, yeah. Let's see what I mean by this. Yeah. So see how this, there you go. So it affects things a lot, right? That makes mm-hmm. it look like Walmart's performing much better. So it shows that the performance from 92 to 98, not as good versus the S&P. Probably more tech-driven years and stuff in that period. Um, and, and more economically sensitive, I guess. And so those uh, had a major effect on it. So you can see the difference between, well, since 1998, Walmart has really solidly outperformed the S&P versus uh, 1992, they're the same. That's the issue with these kinds of orders of magnitude stuff. I would say in all cases... It's unclear. Just being up 500% versus up 300% over 25 years or 800 and 800, it's not really a big difference to me. In both cases, it's pretty close. I know it doesn't look close. You look at the chart like this and you say, well, Walmart's up a lot more if I bought it in 1998 versus today. 
versus uh, the S&P. But it's really a timing thing, as we saw. You know, if you just pick the time six years earlier, it doesn't work out that way. Mm-hmm. So I think the ones that you're looking more for are the ones like this, where it's unclear or they're below the S&P, and the ones um, where it's very clear that they create a lot of value. So you're looking more for the ones that could be 100 baggers and, and things like that. Um, Walmart's obviously not that kind of stock uh, since the 1990s. So it was that kind of stock before 1992 maybe, but since 1992, it's not in that category, uh, not in the category of the Microsofts and the CarMarts. Yeah, and it's sort of arbitrary, but if you look at uh, the long-term stock performance of a company, and even if you go back to its IPO day, that's a good way to look at it because, okay, if they typically when companies come public, they're coming public at a pretty decently high valuation. And if it's still worked out over time, it's just a good starting point because as you could see, right, if you use the later 90s, the returns look a lot different than if you go all the way back to the IPO of the company. So just doing this when you first come across a stock is just a good way to kind of make it black and white and arbitrary look to see if it's created value over time instead of, I don't want to say manipulating the data, but as you uh, have seen, different years could produce different outcomes. Right. And you could use, people always ask, you know, why don't I just use earnings per share or book value or, or sales per share or whatever instead, since that gets rid of the fluctuations in stock price. This is really for people when you're first looking at the company, you don't necessarily know what it does, what really creates value. A company, Walmart, uh, CarMart, and um, companies like that haven't actually changed as much as you might think. But a lot of companies have. And so it's hard to compare them, uh, the effects of acquisitions, buybacks, all that stuff. So a stock chart can really help with giving you an idea of whether value is being created or not. So if you were looking at a company like Maui Land and Pineapple and you charted mm-hmm. it since inception to the S&P 500 and you see that MLP uh, is down 22% and the S&P 500 is up about 600%, I mean, what are some things that are going through your head? What are you thinking? Right. So looking at this chart, I'm thinking a few things. One, we can see the absolute lack of long-term correlation between the S&P 500 and Maui Land and Pineapple. It's almost as if uh, there, a world exists in which you can invest just in something like Maui Land and Pineapple or just in the S&P. There's a, you, know, you have to trade off between the two buckets because, as you can see, during the period where the S&P does very well, um, we don't, you know, Maui Land and Pineapple doesn't do particularly well. This is in the 90s. Then coming down after the 2000 bust, they're, you know, S&P is coming down more, but they're both coming down. It's, it's, you know, and then we see the real estate type boom, the, all that speculation and that kind of thing. And that really helps Maryland and Pineapple, but the S&P comes up much more gradually. Then financial crisis, they both crash, but Maryland and Pineapple, Pineapple crashes and stays down, whereas S&P 500, um, then goes on growing forever. And as you can see, the two, the chart just looks like it's charting two completely different things from that point on. Um, it shows that there's not value creation, right, at Maryland Pineapple. Uh, you can see that the stock is actually it's actually down a bit, right, since the 1990s. Yep, and late 90s. Yeah, yeah. and um, and down versus all prices it was at from about the time of the financial crisis before. So if you bought at any time before the financial crisis, you're down to now. Um, you know, we know a little bit about the company and the situation there now. The assets are probably really undervalued in the market. But it does give you a good idea of the situation, which is that, it, you know, it could be a 
melting ice cube or value that's never realized that kind of thing. Whereas the S and P you're investing in an operating in operating businesses that are reinvesting and growing their earnings over time. And you can see then the chart of these two things. One looks like a, a static asset and the other looks like a, a business that grows over time. Do you ever look at the total return? So maybe there are some stocks where the actual stock price isn't up a significant amount, but maybe they've paid a pretty decent dividend along the way. So the actual total return has been better than you would get from just looking at this chart. Yes, I do not calculate the total return, but I do look at what the dividends were and when. Again, I don't care about what the total return actually is. I don't think it's going to give me a good guess as to what the future return will be. So, you know, when someone asks, so what's the actual total return in ARC, which has paid a dividend, or in Virtua, which is down since um, early on in its history as a stock? Um, those don't matter to me as much as just adding it up and saying, okay, here in these years. So like in the example of ARC restaurants that we talked about, you know, I paid a dividend $1 share throughout the 2010s until COVID. So you can guess just from that chart there that actually ARC was outperforming uh, the S&P throughout most of that period uh, when you do the total term, add the dividend in, and then it only turns down in, I don't know, 2018 or something like that. So in other words, investing in the S&P, investing in ARC in 2009 to 2018 or something were very comparable sorts of returns probably. Um. It looks like the S&P outperforms it later on, but that's unlikely just because ARC's uh, dividend yield was so much higher. Um, but it also helps explain why the stock price, you know, people ask why the stock price is what it is versus what it was in the 2010s. Uh, a big part of that, obviously, is the paying out of the dividends and to a certain extent, the piling out of the cash more recently. So that's going to have a different effect than at America's Car Mart where they don't pay any dividend, very unusual for a company in a, in a finance thing, and they buy back a lot of stock. So that obviously had a helpful uh, impact on their long-term returns. And if that changes, if there's, you know, if they say we're going to start paying a dividend or they say we're going to stop buying back stock, we're going to change to doing other things, then that'll really change their returns going forward. Same sort of thing with ARC, their capital allocation changed. So you have to worry about that in the future, and that can really change what it looks like from what your stock chart was in the past. So if you sometimes you find a business that has a bad stock chart in the past, but the operating business results aren't actually that bad, and the cap allocation is changing now, and so then you get much more excited about it. So it's just telling you a situation of the past. I think when I talk to people a lot, it's like I need to see that the stock chart is telling me um, that it's done well these last however many years. No. It just has to tell the story of me looking at it and saying, okay, why did it happen this way that it had... The prices that it did, uh, why did it create value or fail to create value? And are those things likely to be repeated in the future? You know, if the reasons for them having problems in the past are not things they're going to do in the future, then I'm not too worried about it. Likewise, if the stock chart's amazing, but it's based off of things that happened in the past that aren't going to be repeated, then that's a bit of a problem. Um, so it's how consistent it is with the past with what I think will likely happen in the future. And so like when we give the example of Frost... It's good to link that up directly to like interest rates and think about, okay, so what years was it really strong versus what years um, were what interest rates were like at that time and, and all of that. And you can go to QuickFS and see the multiples, what they were each year, you know, and do all that stuff that people like to do. You can even so, see the return on equity too. Yes. Yep. So you're putting in ollies there? 
Yeah, I was going to ask you about like, how would you think about it? I mean, do you think at a bare minimum, you should look at the stock chart for as long as your investment horizon is or your investment uh like holding period is i mean but you look at a company like ollie that's been public for like what a couple years now um Mm -hmm. that's just such a short amount of data such a small sample size to really uh you know get a lot out of it right right yeah i mean i have looked at charts of companies that went public within the last few years just to compare it to the price at which they went public because it's very easy, as I think we'll get into, to read the SEC filings at the time they went public. So it's really easy to see the change in the company from then to now and ask yourself, are they worth a lot more now than they were back then? Um, that's not all that helpful because obviously I wouldn't invest in the IPO price for these companies. But it can help to say, okay, so how much better a business is it today? How much bigger? Um, and I'm getting at the same prices back then. So that's the only thing I'd say is that because you're going to read the um, prospectus, um, from back then, even if you're investing in the company now, that's always a good thing to go back and read just because the disclosure is so much more than knowing what it looks like compared to the IPO price today is, you know, you can look at that chart. But in general, I would say a chart of 15 years or more is probably most helpful. So 15 mm-hmm. to 30 years, probably, or 15 to any years you can get. But a 15 year chart would be nice to have. So uh, you would definitely want something that goes back slightly before the financial crisis at this point. So I know it within your investing career you've never purchased an ipo or a stock that was ipoing has there ever been a stock that you almost almost purchased that was going public one that you thought pretty serious about um the one i thought looked most interesting was probably open table really yeah yeah um yeah i I think it may have been because it was ipoing it decided to go forward with an ipo into a market that was kind of weak for ipos and that may have been the reason. Um, but yeah, I thought it looked interesting. And was it uh, like going public at like a, not like a crazy Airbnb type valuation or what's the ticker? Do you even know what the ticker is on open table? Uh, not public anymore. It's it was okay. So purchased. it's not public. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was purchased. And then I think they had to write off a lot of the purchase price, but it was also done at a different <laughs> price than, than the price I'm talking about. But um yeah, I mean it's simple enough business to understand, and I thought it was coming at a um, we price. I don't I don't buy IPOs, and I wasn't going to buy that one. But if someone said to me, you know, is there an IPO I should buy? Normally, I would say nothing. But in that case, I'd say, well, you know, look at what the price on that one comes out at. You know, um, there's been some cases of ones that went badly right after the IPO where I thought they looked interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. I think on this podcast we once once mentioned. I thought Funko, the little Funko pop, uh, the pop figures company looked really interesting in terms of the price that it got to versus its IPO because it is almost as if it, it, uh, it did badly pretty quickly or it didn't really have much of a base of people um, willing to hold the stock, I think. So I thought that one was interesting that way. But obviously, you know, that's a very um, not the kind of business we normally invest in. That's much more faddish business and all that. And um, not the kinds of multiples or capital structures that we normally invest in either management teams in terms of like how incentives work there and all that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it do, it does happen sometimes. Uh, it's much more likely with spinoffs, right? So there's many times where yeah. something spun off, I would buy it or I would look at, seriously at spinoffs. So spinoffs are a much better source than IPOs for me. Yeah. 
Got it. Uh, find the longest series of historical financial data possible. Uh, use QuickFS. And if you don't use QuickFS, uh, you should use QuickFS and tell them that you came from Focus Compounding in the checkout. Um, but this is what Buffett does, right? He doesn't project models out into the future. All he wants is as much financial data on the past. And you're using the past to you know, get a feel for the future. But I mean, what are you looking for with the longest series of uh, financial data, right? Did they, have they diluted in the past? What have shares outstanding done? Have margins stayed the same? Is it a predictable business? I mean, we always talk about how people are always shocked because uh, Jeff used to, you know, put in blog form about like the coefficient of variation mm-hmm. and the standard deviation and put the the numbers all around that. But you could really see all of these things or get a, a general idea of it just from looking at it, which is what we've been doing for the past few years on QuickFS. Um, but really, you know, get the longest series of uh, financials that you possibly can. I know sometimes people say, oh, at least get like the past five years or whatever. But no, I mean, if, if it's there, I mean, you want to see everything that's there to get a, a, an accurate picture of management's behavior, um, what the business has done, is it cyclical, all sort of things like that. Yeah, I mean, you would want a sample size of at least two uh, recessions in the industry, I would think, uh, at a minimum. You don't just want one recession. So, you know, it depends on how long the industry is. For for home builders and things like that, um, you could be needing things that are 15 years or more. For semiconductors, you know, yeah, five years might tell you everything you need to know about a cycle in a normal cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, read, highlight, and take notes on the latest 10K um, if you are a value investor and if you are an avid listener of Focus Compounding, you know that you should be doing this. Other investors tell you you should be doing this. Um, so there's not too much to talk about with this. But yeah, you want to learn about the business as it is today. And uh, you want to you know read, highlight, take notes and focus on this document uh, just to learn about you know the company as it currently is. Mm-hmm. Anything to add with that one, Jeff? Nope. Uh, here's one that most people do not do, which is why you should totally do this. Uh, read, highlight, and take notes on the oldest 10K. And uh, if you use SEC.gov, you know this usually goes back to 1995. Um, but there's other sources as well on the internet if you can't get it on SEC.gov. Uh, a lot of times if you just Google whatever company you're looking at and type in like annual reports after that or something, uh, they're out there in some mm-hmm. format. Um, but you know it's cool to see how the company has changed over time, how the industry has changed over time. And I think the best way to get that snapshot is to read the most recent 10K first, and then read the oldest 10K, and it really gives a context to what has happened within the business over time. You know, what were they saying in the past? Uh, is it the same management? Is it the same board? What has the business done? Has it changed? Uh, it's a great way to get like a story out of the company and basically uh learn more about it any thoughts on that jeff yep uh everything you said is true uh it also like we were saying with the coefficient variation thing and all that with the long-term financial results gives you an idea of the range of what can really happen with the business you know when you look at these 10ks it's going to have somewhere in the 10k probably uh, a three-year summary they have to do a two for for um income and, and cash flow statements and stuff like that. But they'll probably be like a three year or so summary at some point in it of just what the most recent years like the year you're seeing in the last two. 
Um, and that combined with the most recent 10K you have, you've just gotten, you know, six years probably of uh, information on those 10Ks. And you're going to see a wider range than you would expect. Because normally, when we're about to talk about investor presentations, you know, when someone emails me and says, t- talks about their appraisal of the company, their valuation and stuff, um, they're basically saying the range of what it could be is fairly close to what the company's presentation is. And with these really long ago years and now, you can see how wide the range of things can really be for a company. And you also get to see when looking at old 10Ks, all the things they say are going to happen that don't happen or that happen differently than they say they will. Or if they were going to go invest capital in like a new product line or a new revenue Mm -hmm. line or a different vertical, you could see what their thoughts were to that and if that panned out or if that didn't pan out, right? Right, exactly. How excited they were about that and now how excited they are about this other thing that they've uh, that they're interested in now. Uh, yeah. So uh, it's surprising, but a lot of people talk about how optimistic management is about this and what they're projecting, but they don't say, and the last five times management was optimistic and projected something. Here's how it went. You know, there are, uh, because usually you're finding the stock for the first time, right? So you may not know unless you're reading a message board or something of people who have been in and out of the stock that, you know, every few years there's something that management says they're really excited about and that it, they put a lot of money into it and nothing really happens. Um, or the reverse, and management never gets excited about things. They always sound pessimistic, and, you know, they they never project things out. Do management teams ever seem pessimistic? And they're like, you know, the next two, three, or four years are going to be challenging for us. I mean, I could think of maybe a couple companies, but it reminds me of, like, when Buffett and Munger said, yeah, we probably wouldn't buy Berkshire stock at today's price. Yeah, uh, there are a few management teams that are pessimistic about some things. Uh, it's more common to find them pessimistic about politics, industry, macroeconomics, uh, things like that. Oh, my competitors are so crazy. Look at what they're doing. Um, then about their own business necessarily. Although sometimes you you do hear that, yeah. Um, you get a good feel for which are, are very conservative versus which are a lot more um, willing to talk about how optimistic they are about the future. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So by reading the oldest annual report and the newest annual report, you get the quickest overview possible of the long-term history of the company. And again, you could get access to this presentation. I know we're talking out loud about this, but I did put some context around these points. Uh, for anyone that wants to view the presentation. Um, but so I'm kind of curious, Jeff, always, I mean, this is for deciding really, if this is a business that you're interested in, right? Mm-hmm. When you decide that it's a business that you are interested in and one that could be a potential buy, I mean, are you going through every single 10 K does the biz is, is that more of a business by business thing? So if you're looking at like a bank, for example, I know we've invested in banks and mm-hmm. I, uh, uh, saw your workspace and you had every single annual report of uh, a bank that we looked at. I mean, once you decide that this is a business that you could be actually interested in, do you go after that and look at every single report? I mean, what are your thoughts yeah. on that? If it's a business you're interested it depends on your personality. If it's a business you're interested in, uh, it's honestly not that hard to read all the past annual uh, financial um, you know, 10 Ks and things like that. Certainly all the past, uh, shareholder letters. So I do it. I'm doing that now for a company where I'm, you know, looking at it for the last, um, I think it is a little over 25 years. Um, but like I said, it's, it's not a particularly complicated one. 
Um, so it's a lot shorter than if I was doing that for, you know, Lehman Brothers or General Electric or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, for especially smaller companies, simpler companies, it's it's not very difficult. Um, yeah. I mean, even then, you know, spaced out over time, it's not taking up a lot of your time of your work day. Uh, even if you just read, you know, two a day, um, you'd be done with it in a couple of weeks. If you read one a day, you'd still be done with it in a month. Um, I usually... It take a while before buying a stock, so it depends on you know. It, there could be some issues with something where I think, oh, I have to get in now. That's uncommon, uh, so I doesn't bother me to sit thinking about a stock for a month, and it's not going to take you longer than that to just add that. And you won't even notice reading one a day for a month that it's really made any dent in your work day. Um, so yeah, it's easy to do the in terms of time and stuff like that. In terms of focus, patience, uh, just mind numbing, uh, whatever. Some people aren't willing to do that kind of thing. Yeah, I think most people aren't willing to do that. A lot of people have trouble with even reading one ten k because there's sections of it that are, uh, you know, they're like, I know all this already and stuff. Um, so you know, it repeats itself a lot. There are some ten k's that are so badly put together that almost 50% of the material is literally repeating close to word for word the other 50% of the material. Um, it yeah. could be about cut in half, yeah. And there are others where that isn't true. Uh, you know, it depends. Like uh, Berkshire Hathaway, if you read their 10Q or their 10K, they sneak in little interesting things in, like, you know, disclosures of a sentence or two. But it might not even, you might not even notice that unless you knew how other 10Qs, 10Ks worked, that they're saying things that are odd. Um in terms of how uh, specific they're being about stuff that's normally put in like a letter or something, but not normally put in those sorts of filings because the language is normally very, very similar um, among all companies in that same category and stuff like that. Yeah. It seems pretty boilerplate, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, it, but it's not difficult to read and uh, you know, I, that that's what I do. I mean, the, the vast majority of the important analysis that I do on a company of the actual time spent on it, thinking about it and everything, is done by writing and calculating uh, directly onto 10Ks. Um, I do get some other information from other sources, and that's useful sometimes in understanding the business in ways that aren't disclosed very well in the um, 10K. And, you know, and when I say 10K, I'm actually putting together 10K, 10Q, and the proxy statement, all that kind of as one group, all the SEC um, filings. But that's more important than, you know, even people believe. We talk about it all the time here. But, yeah, I mean, that's mainly where you get all of the stuff. Sometimes you need more color on it to understand it from other sources because they say things that aren't very clear unless you really understand what that means in other places. And then you kind of triangulate that with the 10K or the 10Q. But that helps you understand it because of how they might classify things, break down stuff, whatever. You don't really understand what that means from a business perspective of why they're doing that. Um, but with that additional color, then you can really figure out what it means. Yeah, and I think it's important to say too that they could have, per our example a couple of minutes ago, like tried a new business or a new revenue line or a new vertical or whatever, and it may have not worked out, right? That doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to invest with them today, right? You're basically trying to judge if it seemed rational at the time, right? And they were honest yeah. about it and it made sense at the time. You're not going to penalize it or be not interested just because they tried something different and it didn't work out. Right. Everything Berkshire tried in insurance after buying national indemnity didn't work out for like a decade <laughs> and a half. Um, and then they built a great insurance company out of that. So, 
But um, no one remembers yeah. that, Jeff. They don't remember <laughs> the ones that didn't work out. Well, you can read Cap Allocation, that book. Um, and Shout out, know, Jacob McDonough. I know you're listening. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, or just Berkshire's letters. I mean, he tries to be uh, Buffett's letters from the period. He tries to be somewhat positive on it. But when Buffett doesn't talk about something, that means it's really bad. You know, that's it. He doesn't single it out. He doesn't single it out and say, you know, John Smith really did a terrible job for us. This, uh, you know, what he'll say is just like, and with new management in place at, you know, this unit, we're sure, you know, we're much more confident in, you know, that kind of thing. Um, which means, you know, the old person got kicked out because he wasn't, he wouldn't stop uh, writing, um, even when they had bad results and stuff. So, um, yeah, I think I, I'm actually most interested in understanding how management. Um, talks about things, how positive or or not there. I mean, it it's interesting because if you read all these for a long time, like we'll talk about some company, and you know, once in a while, I'll mention, I'll be like, yeah, that, that's true, but you know, the CEO's personality, right, is that he's very positive, very uh, optimistic on these things. Not optimistic necessarily about this current situation, but this new thing that they're doing, he's always very optimistic on that that things will work out. Um. There are other ones where that's not the case, where they'll just say, you know, look, it's it's not going to have any immediate effect on us for a while. It's a new thing that we're doing. We'll, we'll see how it turns out, you know. Um, and so you can get an idea for how they approach things in the past, thinking about it, and sometimes for some of them how they, they went about presenting it to investors. Because what you're saying about the general attitude of management is true for companies that a lot of people listening to this podcast might be more familiar with, but companies that went public in the 2010s to today, um, where this is like one of the first CEOs that they had as a public company and, um, and their attitude is, um, important to understand for color in getting an idea of what that means for their projections in the future. I'll give you an example. Um, not that I have a strong opinion one way or the other on this one, but as a real outlier, there's a new CEO. I don't know. He's been there less than a year or something at um, Six Flags. So I mentioned this to you off the podcast. Mm-hmm. Six Flags has some of the highest level of consistent insider purchasing without a lot of insider sales that I've ever seen in a company. Um, a lot of it is new people coming in around management and management is very optimistic and very um very talkative but but a little crazy but very talkative and um and interesting what what they're talking about doing and, and some of the things they're talking about doing makes a, a ton of sense to me in fact a few of them are the exact things I would do if I was asked to, what should six flags do um though I wouldn't necessarily say the things that that they're saying and be as uh as uh, optimistic you know in front of investors as they are um but they're buying a ton of stock, or at least they had been buying a ton of stock and not selling it in a pattern that is unusual for a public company. Um, so you try to put some context on that. Okay, what did it look like before at Six Flags? What did this management, because some of these people are from another public company, um, what did they do over there? Uh, what was that company like? What was that culture like? How's that different from this culture here and also some of the history there? But it's also interesting because they said some things which are absolutely true about Six Flags and how it was run in the past and all that, because they're outsiders being brought in. Basically they can say that. So Mm -hmm. these are bits of information you might not always get. 
Although, you know, if you're just looking around and stuff, you would have them, but they don't usually put them in the 10K and stuff. Um, so they give an idea of, you know, how, um, how that, you know, how, uh, discounting focus the company was and focus on attendance and not raising their prices for long periods of time and putting in all of these different things that didn't um, have uh, that, you know, if you just hear them describing 10Ks and stuff, you need the color of actually going to the parks or something. So some of the things they were saying are very obvious that if you went to the parks and read the 10Ks, you'd have a good idea for. So like, I think they talked about a dining meal plan that they had in that all this food gets thrown away and that, you know, because people are on this food thing and then, of course, we produce lots of low-quality food because we're feeding a lot of people who have a meal plan that's free and it all just gets tossed away places. Well, it's obvious if you go to the parks that that's true. Um, And they also just talked about how bad they weren't moving people around, not making them wait a lot in one place or another. Again, it's obvious if you go to Disney or something, which is the... The company's key skill is moving people. Um, it's versus something like Six Flags, which has a lot of trouble with that. You take those things and you combine it with the things that they're saying. So it's important, though, not to get too excited about one or the other. You want to keep in mind multiple ideas about management. So I would keep multiple ideas about management here. I'd say they're saying a lot of things that I think, yes, if if I was on the board or whatever, I would say, and you know, you're interviewing candidates. I'd say they're saying all the right things about what this company needs to do. They got a plan. They got a plan to hit EBITDA targets in a few years. Um, on the other hand, (laughs) you're getting a read on the personality that this could be someone that set, that really believes we're going to hit a target, wants to hit a target and is, is not going to be the most pessimistic, the most conservative in presenting things to you and is going to be a real cheerleader for things probably inside the organization as well as when talking to investors, and you get a sense of that personality there. Um, And then you also see the pattern of the insider buying and selling, what that means, and you try to compare that to other situations you've seen when people come in, is this normally what happens? Um, And you try not to look at any one of them in isolation. And so is that reading the 10K, or is that reading the earnings call transcript, or, or listening to the earnings call, or is that you know, just reading on something, oh, there was a lot of insider buying of this company. It's all those things put together and they matter. Looking at the proxy statement and all of that, you're trying to answer a question for yourself. You see something out of the ordinary, something interesting, and you say, okay, what does this really mean and how do I answer it? And then you go to all the evidence to find that out. Um, there's a lot of people who say, oh, I read the 10K, I did this, but they won't talk about what I just talked about with what you see, which I think is a big issue with this company, positive or negative or whatever. A big thing is that you have a change in management and strategy, which will probably affect the company over the next several years. And that's something that you can get from reading these statements as well as finding other disclosures. But it's all from SEC stuff and then the throw-in that I just said of the the um, earnings call thing, which I, I do recommend for the more follow companies generally not the things we're interested in. They do have earnings calls, and so you would add the transcript size required reading along with the 10Qs, 10Ks. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this isn't an overlooked stock, but you clearly, and I think everyone that listening knows this just from talking about all these more followed companies. I mean, you still follow a lot of these businesses. Is that to get like data points on the like, smaller companies? I mean, it's great to always find peers and other companies that give maybe other you know industry information or just get more information about what's going on within the business. But is that why you typically follow a lot of these larger companies, even though we'll never buy them? Yeah, a lot of it's just curiosity and stuff. Unfortunately, 
we're focused on overlook stocks alone, so it's not something that I can use. But of course, I'm curious about Cinemark. I'm curious about Six Flags. Um, you know, it it looks interesting. It looked interesting. Um, you know, you can't help but think, oh, I wish that I could, um, you know, buy it and, and implement the kinds of plans that they should implement, the things that they're talking about doing uh, with the prices that uh, the stock traded on everything and, and look at it and say, oh, is this an interesting situation this way? Um, and, you know, sometimes people ask questions about stocks, not Six Flags generally, but but some of their other peers and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. So I do look at them. Um, yeah. And uh, it, it can be helpful, I guess, in getting a gauge for different businesses. I mean, for instance, you read a bunch of 10Ks and earnings, earnings let's say earnings calls transcripts, because that, that's useful for what I'm going to say specifically, which is around certain companies, certain industries. And you get a feel for what the industry is like right now. So you read Six Flags. Um, Disney goes into less uh, detail on this issue, but there's other articles and things about Disney parks that give you more detail. So Disney's actually a very well-covered company, not as a public company, but just people interested in how it works um, and will reveal things even that aren't stock investors interested in it. So... You can find some stuff out about Disney from recent articles, probably. You can certainly read the earnings calls transcript for Six Flags and, I'd say, uh, let's say Cinemark. So, from all of them, you do gather the information that attendance is down, but that the lost attendance was very marginal in terms of how profitable it was. And so, the um, on a per, per um, guest basis, they've had tremendous increases in gross profitability tremendous increases in terms of spending desire to spend up uh, to trade up to buy extra perks and things to spend on alcohol to spend on uh dining things and whatever just a ton of spending by the people who are there and uh this is obvious from all of their um results and it does make you wonder if they'll ever get back to wanting the attendance levels that they had before and because that comes with higher staffing levels and things like that and and crowding which is a major factor right how much you enjoy a visit to disney or to six flags or something depends in large part about how few people are there to some extent that's true with movies although i think it almost works the opposite way as long as they have enough staff that you'd rather more people with you in a movie as long as the whole process was very smooth in terms of getting your concessions and your seat um so I think they all reflect that and the numbers you see are huge that way. So it's something going on and it's something to keep in mind because you don't want to think, Oh, Cinemark is doing something really special to get these results. Um, because everyone seems to be getting these results, which are, um, much higher per capita spending on much lower attendance than they ever expected. Um, and, and levels of profitability they didn't think were possible at these attendance levels. And all of these companies are seeing the same thing that way. So what does that tell you then? I mean, if you were an investor trying to frame a investment case today, how would you think through like sort of that dichotomy of, oh, well, do you want more admissions right. or higher admissions, but that could also mean lower profitability and have your park be more congested? How would you be thinking mm-hmm. about that? Yeah, I think I'd be thinking that they're probably rethinking it themselves at each of these mm-hmm. companies. They're seeing the numbers come in. They're saying, oh, maybe we were wrong about everything for decades in some cases or something. Um, you know, Six Flags or something, attendance levels or something that they're a public company and, and they're focused on that and, and analysts are focused on that. 
Um, for some of the others, I think they might be really surprised. Um, Cinemark, I think, is really surprised um, by what they've seen. Uh, in terms of, though they had some data, but they didn't have amazing data on the because um, they have a a movie club thing. Uh, so, but they, the, you have to be careful because these companies are, like I said, movie theater companies have some data, um, and it would be useful to a company like Amazon or something to own, or Netflix or whatever to own a theater, but it's not like a supermarket, like Amazon needed to own Whole Foods or need to own a supermarket. Supermarkets have a lot of data. Um, movie theaters don't have data like that and generally don't, hadn't thought of it that way as much as they should. All these companies probably are going to get closer to what we see with casinos, right? Where they know their players. Um, and I think they could be much more profitable if they're run that way. Um, I mean, Cinemark, I think, in the most recent race called Transcript said uh, they have 100,000 people on their movie club thing, which will qualify for their top tier. So top tier for Cinemark would mean in terms of movies that you go to. Now, some of these could be fairly large families, and that's why that's happening. But um, in terms of number of tickets bought or uh, this is a new tier they just introduced. So number of tickets they bought or times going to the movies. These are people who are going to the movies literally in order of magnitude um, higher than the the general public. If we just took the total general public, not movie going public and said, okay, what does the average person go to in a year Um, before COVID and stuff? uh, You know, tickets sold in the U.S. were only about three times the size of the population or something. So the average person wasn't going very much. Um, With this, we're talking about a huge number of people. Um, They don't have that many people in their plan. Um, So that's a very, that's, that's actually a much bigger, more important number than it might sound. So, you know, in a, in a given year, they could have, you know, over a hundred million uh, tickets sold at a company like like Cinemark in the U.S. Um, n- not in a year like this right now, but normally. And um, to think, okay, 100,000 people, what does that matter? But it's 100,000 people that are going every couple weeks to a movie, basically. And realizing that and realizing how they probably spend and everything. And then realizing how much of the week concession sales and stuff you had was driven by people who maybe were very fringe moviegoers who weren't that interested in seeing movies, but were more interested in um, doing something out that's competitive with other uh, uh, price competitive with other kinds of entertainment. And so I think there'll be a lot of rethinking of that. And there's been some talk, you know, some um, media reports and things about that. Like, you know, the Disney is considering things along the lines of like Amazon prime type thinking um, because they're realizing how much they've done more cross uh, cross company promotional things, bundling things together and stuff. So they have some information on that. You know, they have uh, about who uses what products um, together and what services. You know, whether it's they have branded credit cards, they have cruises, they have uh, timeshares, they have parks, they have uh, uh, subscription services, Disney Plus, but also, you know, ad tiered things versus things that aren't uh, without ads. From all that stuff, you can sort of gather what people are more price sensitive and what ones aren't. And you might want to bundle together things on the people who aren't price sensitive and all of that. Um, So it moves you closer to the Amazon Costco type approach, which says let's have a lot of spending by a smaller number of of, 
uh, customers who really love us that way and try to drive that as our economics rather than um, reaching the general public and hitting sort of attendance numbers that way. So if you were trying to frame an investment case around that, to me, it sounds like you're basically saying, okay, the stock, if if you think it's cheap today, right, we'll, we'll play that hypothetical, the stock's cheap today. And if they get back to, you know, let's call it pre-COVID numbers um, coming out of this, their operations are actually going to be better because you're not actually projecting out and working in this into a model. So is that what you would be thinking about today is, okay, I think it's cheap Mm -hmm. today based on past numbers and coming out of this. I don't want to call it like a call option because it's more strategic than that. But, you know, there's that optionality of, okay, I think operations are actually going to improve out of this. Is that how you would be framing the investment case? Yeah. So let's take the example of Cinemark. We can see here revenue in the year before COVID was $3.28 billion. Uh, we have some idea of what their operating margin and operating profit was in the past. Let's say EBIT, for instance, was between four and $500 million for basically all years prior to COVID. Um, you can also look at dividend per share, which is you know, you have a 10% dividend yield if they got back to that level now. Earnings per share, you have a single digit PE, all that stuff. Okay. So what would we have to look at in terms of what the current situation is versus the past and um, how things would be different? So what the way I would look at it usually is, okay, let me find an actual real year in the past or a couple years. So maybe 2017 to 2019 would be good. Um, and look at what the average of that is. And think back in my mind to what 2017 to 2019 was like in terms of the general economy, in terms of movies, in terms of the stock market. Okay, I can do that. So that's easier than a model because I'm imagining a real time then and what it was like. Um, And then I'm thinking, okay, what would that need to look like in the future and what has changed since then? A few things have changed. So we can just tick off the things that would have changed. So one, CapEx was higher than, than it will ever be in the future, most likely. 2017 to 2019, they were building out a bunch of uh, they were still building theaters and things in a way that they're just not going to do now um and uh they were converting to more premium screen formats and definitely a lot of um recliners so those levels of you're seeing in all those years and the year two years before that too they were spending 300 350 million dollars a year i don't think they are going to do that at all in the future there's a strong indication of that because even now depreciation and amortization 250 million why would a movie theater be spending 100 million more beyond that in excess of depreciation and amortization you know um if amc is going to meet you know debt payments and things like that they're certainly not going to be doing that level of capex that we saw then i don't think their competitors will be doing a lot of capex you know this is a very leveraged company but other ones are even more leveraged um so less capex probably okay um other factors, they just wrote off, they didn't talk about it much, but they just wrote off an investment or wrote down an investment in uh, in National Cinema Media, which is in a way sort of a publicly traded stock. It's a weird one. The, yeah, it's an LP in which the half that Cinemark owns a part of, uh, the, the major U.S. Um, theaters each own a percentage, which adds up to more than 50% of the total company. The remainder of the shares are in the hands of the public and have dropped to almost nothing. They've dropped to like 95%. Um, company would be seriously in danger of uh, uh, failing to meet 
uh, debt payments and stuff because it's very heavily uh, leveraged. So they wrote that down. And that had a major effect on earnings in this period. So that's the kind of thing you can make adjustments. You could say, okay, so they wrote down that thing. You look at it two ways. One, they actually made a profit this quarter. They didn't lose money, but it shows up as if they lost money because they wrote this down. That's more the thing that the analysts would worry about and the press in, in a, saying whether they beat earnings or not. Um, what I would more think about is, okay, they wrote that down. Maybe the, the business still exists. Does advertising? It's it's the advertising that you see, different kinds, but mainly the advertising that you see right before the movie that you're going to see. So think uh, Maria Menudos or whatever uh, comes up there and talks to you about you know um, what things you're gonna uh, watch. And, and there's this company and there's a, a competitor that's also quite large, run on some other circuit, on some other theater operators. But uh, they do a bunch of advertising, and then it's the thing that you see up to the last point in which it switches to being Coke or Pepsi now for your feature presentation, and it's that for like 15 seconds. Everything between when you sit down and that, that's ads, is is what this company's running. And so the, the basically, it's a captive company in the sense that the um, theater owners um, own a lot of the stock. In the company, uh, it, they don't own the public company stock. They actually own the equity to get distributions. So um, they used to get that and used to help earnings and cash flow and stuff. And now, if that's if they're going to be diluted down to nothing, or if that's going to be have to be re um, capitalized in some way or shut down or whatever, I mean, presumably there'll be some kind of advertising that all these companies will make some money off of. But what will happen? Who knows? And so that might change from the past. So you might want to go back look what did they get from twenty seventeen and twenty nineteen from that? Okay. Then you ask what's attendance like and stuff, and this is where it gets more complicated. They're down about 25% in terms of attendance, the U.S. box office and Cinemark both. Cinemark's a little bit outperforming, but that's basically it. So the interesting thing, though, is the top movies, right, are not down at all. So I think we can say this generally. Uh, if we take Maverick and we take uh, Spider-Man... Um, no way home, right? Yeah, um, those two, which just each made a few million dollars in re-release or extended release or whatever you want to call it, um, this past weekend, those two I don't believe would have made more money before COVID. I don't think there's any year in which you can release them in which they make more money than they did in their actual release, and I think most people analyzing the box office would say that. Um, Spider-Man hit at least as high as the numbers that anyone would have projected and Maverick probably higher than anyone's projections. So is that, that because there's bring, less product? Yeah. So that could be the issue. So if that's true, then is attendance really down at all? This is where it gets complicated, right? Attendance is down. We, you know, we can see attendance is down. It's down about 25%, like I said, across us um, theaters, but is that because you have? Does that mean that if you release the same movies that you used to into theaters, would attendance be the same already, even at this point? And there's all sorts of weird polling and stuff that they do. Are you comfortable going back to the movies and you know whatever? And these are not adequate, I think. You know, polling people on that is like asking them what would you do if gas was five dollars a, uh, a gallon or one dollar. You know, we have to actually change the price to five or one to see what people would really do. We can't ask them in a poll. Um, so do they feel comfortable about COVID? They might say no when movies in theaters are terrible, but yeah, they'll risk COVID if it, if it means they get to see Maverick, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so I think it's back more to the numbers that people 
would have expected for those movies. So that's interesting. And there were other movies that were released that I don't think were far off from what they should have done before either. So um, that also shows up in their results, which is interesting. They disclosed, and you can calculate this yourself, that um, film rental is 58%, uh, meaning that this is the amount that goes to the studio. Uh, officially, it's recognized as revenue by Cinemark, and then it's paid on to the studio. But it's basically just collected on behalf of Cinemark, uh, on behalf of the distributor. Um, so it, really, they just only get the other half. You know, In this case, they get the other 42%. The other 58% goes right into the pocket of the, the studio that releases the movie. Normally, that number is much lower. You know, For a, a theater in the U.S., sometimes that number is close to 50%. You know, rule of thumb, you can cut that number about in half. It can vary from, you know, 40-some percent to 50-some percent, but above 55% is kind of unusual. Why did that happen? Because they're giant blockbuster movies. So they the deals that they have with companies like um, Disney, uh, Sony, Paramount, you know, ones that release big movies, um, are not as favorable, especially for how those movies probably earned their revenue in some cases, early weeks, premium formats, um, as they are with more small independent movies. So maybe, um, trying to think of an independent one that did well, uh, you know, everywhere, everything all at once, whatever the name of that one is. The Blair Witch Uh, Project. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I meant this year, this year. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so that kind of movie might, uh, share more revenue with the theaters that that play it because it, it's trying to get in more screens um so anyway because of that you could say okay but well that's actually a major factor if if it changes this way um then maybe there's been a change in your margins and that would worry people if that happened but i think that's mostly just a, shows that the uh, product is skewed more and so that's something that they would worry about then the last thing which i think is is the big one is is it realistic to be able to run your theaters the way that you were running them before? And I think what we're seeing is the answer to that is no. In the current labor environment, you can't run a theater like you did before. You have to operate fewer hours or automate more things or can't provide the, the services that you'd want to. And um, I think that is an issue. I don't know if it's a permanent issue, like it's a, just a cyclical issue or what. But these are things that do need a lot of staff during all sorts of different hours. And so maybe reduced operating hours and things like that are more likely. So maybe less attendance and more uh, money per person who comes there um, is the direction that you'll see things go. But that's about all you need to consider, I think, in terms of looking at the past and looking at this most recent thing, as well as looking at the financial situation because you have a higher risk of higher rates when you refinance um, debt and things like that. So let's say you brought on some debt when COVID first happened or something, you're going to need to refinance that in whatever years that might be, let's say it's 2025, 2026, whatever it might be in the case of this company. Um, those rates might be higher than you thought. So originally you might've thought, okay, they'll refinance that down at much lower rates because they were getting junk bond distressed almost type rates at the moment they were borrowing during COVID high spreads versus what the, the, um, government bonds and stuff were yielding. But now those uh spread those those spreads may come down. They may be a better credit, but they may end up with similar rates simply because they have uh, uh interest rates across the economy have have gone up so much. So, those are the issues that you have 
there, and then you can try to adjust that versus what it was worth in the past. I think that's an easy way of doing it. A lot of people talk about different, you know, DCFs and things that they could do. But the reason why that's an easy way to do it is that you can kind of say, okay, well, let's imagine COVID didn't happen. You wouldn't have known it was going to happen. I'm looking at this company in 2017 to 2019. What do I think is a good price to pay for it? What do I think their future would have been? And then compare that to now. And so then you only have to think about what things have changed since then. And I think we cover the things that have changed, you know, mm-hmm. national cinema media, the CapEx, the attendance levels, um, the profitability per person that you have. And then the the staffing shortages somewhat related to that supply chain stuff, you know, that they might not be as good with their um, concessions and stuff. But I think that's mostly a labor issue. But they're, they're, they got more demand than they need probably on concessions and, and things like that. But maybe not quite as always the supply that they want. What about the industry viewpoint that you think supply, so like the number of screens, is going to come down out of the the industry over time? Mm. I don't think we'll see a lot of expansion. Uh, We didn't see much of a contraction just because financial conditions got so easy so fast that I wouldn't have predicted that. Um, You know, I couldn't have predicted the ability of AMC to like recapitalize a couple times, for instance. So I would have thought that you'd see more um, companies in, in actually in situations where they might have to sell off properties, get out of leases, shut things down, whatever. And there's not a lot of that. Like I mentioned, even with um, Cinemark, you know, their write downs had some other items in it. You can see the write downs each quarter. Um, they wrote down very little in terms of like theaters that they were closing or whatever. Um, at very very small amounts as compared to writing down the National Cinemedia one. So I, I think the growth level in those things will be really, really low, though. And I think it might happen over time that more premium and fewer seats. I think fewer seats is more realistic over time than than necessarily fewer screens. Um, but I don't expect fast growth in any of those things. Like people ask, what will their cap allocation be going forward? We'll see. It could change a lot. But uh, I just don't see how they or anyone else are going to actually spend a lot on expanding um, capacity in any way. They could upgrade some things more than I think they will, but I don't see a ton of of cash flow going back into this business or this industry. When you say fewer seats, I immediately think of like airplanes, right? Like what would happen to their business model if they added fewer seats to an airplane? How would that affect Cinemark? Does that mean their prices are actually going to go up to try to earn mm-hmm. more in gross profit per customer that comes in so that back to the per capita spending or mm-hmm. is it more like an airline where it's like actually you know the vast majority of their profit comes from the last few seats sold uh they're very attendance you know driven i mean we, we can see that i just told you that the margin on um ticket sales let's say was 42 percent or something last gross margin was let's say 42 percent last quarter um, it shows here gross margin is, you know, 60 whatever percent. That's because of concessions having very high gross margin. Um, but let's say, you know, gross margin is 60 to 65 percent. Well, their operating margin was only around 15 percent. So obviously their operating costs generally um, there were very high. They're, they're half their costs, basically. Um, it's not, you know, if you look at some restaurants, it's not that different. It's a little different, but it's not that different. So they are attendance-driven businesses in the same respect that way. Um, there's not a lot a restaurant can do if it loses half of its 
uh, if it loses a, a quarter of its uh, uh, attendance or something, that's the difference between being profitable or not, even if you try to offset some things with, with menu prices and stuff. Same situation here. Um, I... I think that they will raise prices somewhat in the future. Um, but I think they're more would prefer that that be done more through people um, choosing things that cost more. So especially um, more concession spending, but also more premium formats and stuff like that. So if anything, I think there might be some pricing experimentation in this industry around charging more um, for things, uh, maybe charging more for big films charging more for early, um, things like that. But, you know, who knows? I think that in general, I don't know that people would like this and that would be great for the industry, but in general, you could probably charge more early on in a run and then decrease the price as the run went on. Um, that would make the most sense purely from my revenue maximization thing. If you brought in consultants and said, what's the right price for this thing? I'm sure they would tell you to have a high price early on and then to drop your price each weekend um, gradually over time as you have front-loaded demand for these things, and that might help smooth that demand over time. They have huge drops from the first week to the second week right now. Mm. Um, yeah, and then also then you end up with a lower price, which could be more competitive with streaming and stuff at the end of your run instead of a high price. But the whole industry has been run on the model of single pricing for everything and then really big crowds for blockbusters and smaller crowds for independent things and stuff, but you just have an idea of what a price of a movie ticket should be. The actual pricing is highly variable. I mean, if you go to a lot of these theaters, Cinemark or whatever, on a Tuesday each week, uh, you're getting prices that are half of what some people are paying on the weekends. So, you know, um, and I don't know if that's as great a benefit to them. Um, but, you know, these are things that are hard to work out because they got to be kind of worked out in the industry, just like the window was worked out for how long until a movie is released. Um because, you know, look at something like Maverick, right? turns out the window that they were thinking for a movie of what's the appropriate window is too short for a film like that. It was still running with plenty of money being made when it went on to streaming services. It was still making money in theaters. So um, experimentation with that stuff. But there's give and take because obviously, you know, there are different interests here. Studios have a different interest for movie theaters. It sounds to me like the potential investment case you're framing is the time in the businesses lifetime when Buffett would be interested, right? So there's going to be last CapEx in the future. The industry is more settled um, and mm -hmm. they could take that extra CapEx and, you know, use it for capital allocation, really from the perspective of, you know, buying back stock or paying more in dividends, uh, paying down some debt. But, you know, it'd be cool to see them uh, buy back more stock, which they historically have not done, according to this quick FS page. No, they haven't bought back stock at all, and they did pay out a lot in dividends. Uh, the The downside here is your future in terms of capital allocation is probably going to be a lot of debt pay down. down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. However, the company generates a lot of free cash flow, or would be quickly generating a lot of free cash flow relative to debt. Um, you know, to give you an idea, I think what's their okay long term debt situation is two point five billion. Even if we say capital leases with one point one. We're at 3.5 or something billion. Um, that's seven times with leases, which I shouldn't include, but I'm going to include just to be extreme here. Um, that's seven times their cash flow from operations that they had in recent years. Uh, I think when we did Transdime, it was, what, 18 times or something? Mm -hmm. So um, it's not 
it, you know, it's not that unusual. And the capital leases portion, I'm counting, but really, look, people don't count them when they use restaurants and things like that. No one counts them. So it, the long-term debt is the part that's unusual. And if you look, I think, um, I don't know, 1.5, 1.7 million, something like that of it was kind of normal level before COVID. Uh, I don't know exactly what it is, but let's say it's not more than a billion or something that is unusual debt that's just purely due to COVID. Uh, it's probably less than that. So they were running at those levels before. It, it's a highly leveraged situation. That's how they make returns in this business. So, uh, you know, I would, I don't think it's a highly unpredictable business actually, but I do operationally, you know, the, the returns don't vary all that much, but uh, except during COVID. But, Financially, yeah, there's there's meaningful leverage here, and people should be careful about it. Because I've got a bunch of emails about this company, and you know, one of them was doing calculations of what it's worth in appraisal of the business. And I said, you know, I don't disagree with the valuation of the appraisal of the business, but just because you appraise the business as being worth um, two or three times more than what it trades at, let's say for the equity, um, which I don't think is an unreasonable appraisal of what the the equity is worth that doesn't mean you have a 50% or 67% or whatever margin of safety. It doesn't mean that mm-hmm. um, because, you know, you have the debt in the form of bondholders and stuff, but also landlords. Um, and you have a lot of operating leverage, you know, in the business, even absent that. So the, the downside is there are ways to lose meaningful amounts of money in this. Um, I don't know how likely they are, but they're there, and the stock is incredibly volatile, even probably more volatile than the performance of the underlying company suggests it should be. So this is one which, if we go into recession or something, probably lots of people will short. Um, I could see that happening, you know. Do you think you would still look at leaps in this company as an interesting way to invest in the stock? Yeah. I mean, the thing that always gets me about that looking at it is... um, there just doesn't seem to be any volume in that ever. Like in terms of if I'm, I'm looking right about how much has actually been, uh, it actually exists. How much has actually been, been bought and sold. Um, it's just a very small number. Now, when you say, so if you're an individual investor wanting to put down a small amount of money to risk on something, then I guess that's fine. But to me, it, it doesn't make sense. Um, just because the size of it, yeah, the size doesn't make sense to me um, for a stock like this. Now, maybe there's stocks with the options being much more popular for those things that it does make a lot more sense. But because otherwise, okay, so maybe a lot more trades much closer to the date. Um, but this far out, it just seems like so little. Um, so, uh, but yeah, there, there, you can see some and see that there seems to be some, if it's something that people want to do, um, I think is, is uh, Cinemark a New York stock exchange stock? I, I don't remember if it's New York stock exchange or NASDAQ. It's NASDAQ. Um, um not sure. Regard, regardless, uh, if you go to New York stock exchange or NASDAQ or whatever, you can find the options. I'm sure those, mm. those websites, um, in terms of finding the, the, uh, leaps that you're talking about which is true you can buy um options for january 2024 right now i believe 
Um, when people buy so, leaps, are they exercising those options? I mean, I'm not talking about investors that are investors in quotes. I'm not talking about individuals that are like YOLOing call options, mm -hmm. but for strategic investors that are buying leaps a couple years out, are they actually exercising those leaps or are they really just capturing the difference between the price they actually paid for the option and then the price that they could eventually sell it at if it's so in the money? Like basically if you get the direction right and the price of that option that let's say you paid a buck for or whatever it is, now it's worth, you know, 15 bucks or 20 bucks. Yeah, I have no idea. None. Um, I, I think that the stock will be plenty volatile anyway for people. It is true that there are leaps there and that some of them, if you could get them at that price, do look interesting that way. But for me thinking about it, even if I was managing a lot less money and stuff, um, the amounts that are involved just seem like, uh, okay, so you're tying up less capital by doing it, but you're not really getting as much exposure as you would want when compared to the, this is, I mean, anyone can buy as much in stock as they want in this thing and sell as much as they want practically in a day. I mean, uh, it, it turns over an incredible amount for the size company that it is. So uh, the equity is very, very liquid. Um, mm -hmm. And I think you, you get plenty of it that way. The Leaps also have the risk that something happens just in the economy, in the world, and whatever. Uh, and so you get the timing wrong by a small amount. And, you know, that's a big deal. So, um, yeah, they're not three-year leaps they're not five years you know we're, we're still talking about a fairly short period of time uh, mm -hmm. in this case you know we're only talking about um i think I, th I think it's january usually right that they happen in so um we're, we're only talking about you know um what 16 months or something mm -hmm. not a very long period years. of time mm -hmm. yeah it, you know if you see what's happened with um the stock since covid um if you bought in 20 you know it, Later in 2020 and stuff, you did well for like a year or so. But after that, you've waited for it to come back and it hasn't happened. Um, so that same period could drag on longer than you expected, you know. It's so funny. I was thinking about this when you were talking about Disney. It seems like whenever I hear other investors talk about Disney, it's all about Disney+. Plus. And it's whenever you talk about Disney, it's all about Disney the parks. Plus. And you don't even mention Disney Plus ever. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I just think it's a funny like that's just like us versus like everybody else. I don't know. It's just I think it's a great example of that. I don't know. I would say read the 10Q. Look at what domestic parks makes. I mean, you know, we can you know what uh, what Disney Plus makes right now. It, it, it makes a number that that has a minus sign in front of it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you know, that's an interesting one in terms of capital allocation. We'll see. But uh, they va the market value growth in, in streaming things really high and liked it a lot. And for Netflix, there's one way of thinking about that or whatever. But for companies like Disney and um, HBO, you know, and, and Dis Dis Warner Discovery, um, they have to think about how much they've put over on those services and what, what opportunities they lost otherwise. Because for some of them, you know, for, for Warner, um, it, it's pretty meaningful in terms of what they did there with theatrical things. And for Disney, there's like no, um, I mean, basically, since COVID happened, it's unclear, you know, what the future of, of Pixar as a studio will be and stuff. Because it's become a basically straight to streaming thing, mm -hmm. which is interesting. Um, that's not something that anyone could have imagined a few years before. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, but the the numbers that they do for their you know domestic parks because all those are open and stuff, and it's easier to to look at those. Um, they make a lot of money. They put a lot now. They put a lot of capex back into them. They're not like the Cinemark things, you know. Um, theaters are a lot uh, cheaper thing to operate in terms of getting a lot of free cash flow out of them. They're they're much more free cash flow. Um, big provider of that than something like parks. But yeah, I think and I think that there's opportunity in that more than people might think. Um, for in the parks, what we were just talking about. Yeah, Raising better prices, mix of people. Yeah. yeah. Te- use of technology per capita um, spending yep tons of data i mean you have a closed system in there that that you can get tons of data on people i mean they're already tracking pe- people are wearing these bracelets they're walking around the whole park with being tracked at all moments that way uh, everything they do and and um you know it's yeah i think that th- there's a lot of data for something like that that's a lot of useful data that could be used and could help with the mix of it going forward um so there's a lot of opportunities in all of those things. Um, the streaming thing, you, well, you know my opinion about the streaming thing. I don't see why they can't get to be the size of Netflix and stuff. But each of these companies that are those that size, uh, you know, that have that library and stuff. But you lose a bunch of money up front, and then when you get out on the other side, unless you take on a lot of advertising, you raise your prices a bunch. You know, it, it's it's tough compared to what you were making before. We just said, you know, the the film rental revenue for these companies. If you imagine that Cinemark is on the opposite side of it, if Cinemark was paying out fifty eight percent of ticket prices out to distributors in the quarter, well, you can imagine for Paramount how nice it is to actually release Maverick in theaters. I mean, that's a serious thing that people probably considered was why don't we just release Maverick on Paramount Plus, make it the thing to you know, when the COVID dragged on for that long, that's something that people really thought about. And you can see the numbers on that. It's now like, you know, probably going to pass Black Panther or whatever. Um, so it's one of the top 10 biggest grossing movies in theaters. And they get a pretty nice margin on that. And it's a huge difference for Paramount versus that, whether they put it on the service. And by the way, if it then goes on the service afterwards, there's probably still people who want to see the movie later. Mm-hmm. So yeah, think about how much they want to miss out on. Right, whereas HBO and you know and Disney with Pixar was putting all of their content that people really wanted on during COVID, so it's like having huge capex for them. Um, so it, it's it's something to think about. Interesting. All right, that was a great uh, uh, tangent we went down. Okay, so reading the oldest thank okay, uh, why read the company's own investor presentation? And this one's a mixed bag. If you've listened to the podcast in the past and have read Jeff's writings, he typically um, says do not do that because those presentations are made with you in mind and uh, they're communicating exactly what you want to hear. Nine times out of 10, um, this pitch is being made directly by company's management and aimed directly at people like you. So it's very biased. Uh, but of course, you know, the positives are is that, yeah, you could learn a lot of information and uh, in a very short period of time, because again, we're just deciding, is this a business that you want to learn more about and a good way to do that or figure out like what the company cares about from like a KPI perspective is to read an investor presentation. I always read them. Uh, but again, I do know how biased they are. And I think as long as you are aware of that, it's uh, it's like anything, you know, you just absorb it and take what you want and disregard what you don't yeah i read them last 
Uh, I do read them, but I read them last. Uh, I prefer to start um, reading from the filings and then moving my way backwards to that. Uh, and I think the biggest issue they have is guiding your attention to certain things to focus on that and away from others. So basically, it's not... What it is is they get to decide what the KPIs are. They get to decide how you should frame this, how you should value this stock. Um, and that might be totally wrong, the way that you approach it. But it, you can't undo that first impression that you had. And so their way of saying, this is what our company, how it makes money, and this is how you can kind of determine what it's worth, that is something that th that it's hard for you to undo once you've seen. Uh, it's... Generally, when I get emails from people, it's clear that they've read the investor presentation because of that reason, that that's how they frame it. Is that because they're framing it the way? So they're basically yes. bringing you, Jeff Gannon, the investment thesis that mm -hmm. is basically verbatim from the investor presentation. Yeah, which is fine. You know, I said the, the Six Flags thing, they have an EBITDA target a couple of years out. Maybe that's the best way to value the company. Here's what I think are the odds they'll hit that EBITDA target. Um and then what the company would be worth on that. But it's not something you come up with on your own, except they gave you the target. They say what year and what um, and what uh, the EBITDA figure was going to be. So, What are your thoughts on sell-side like industry or company reports? I don't even know where to get, where to even get those. <laughs> we don't have a Bloomberg. We don't um, have any of that. I don't know. I mean, a lot of the companies we do follow or would be actually interested in, there's nothing on it, but... I don't even know where you would get that, quite frankly. So sometimes there's interesting information in terms of comparing companies in the industry and explaining uh, how they are different and how they work. Um, however, it's usually focused on things we don't care as much about, basically timing. So that's the you know the big problem. Um, you can see it also in the earnings calls. Many times the earnings call questions are not things that are, you know, what we were kind of hoping would be the earnings call question. You know, they're, what do I put in for this quarter? What are you going to do next quarter? You know, um, you can see we've talked about Frost before. Go listen to their earnings call or read the transcript or whatever. Um, more than probably it should be is like, so what exactly do you think the, um, change in your deposit cost for next quarter will be? What exactly do you think the net interest margin for next quarter will be? As opposed to, okay, let's say Fed funds rate goes to 4% and stays there for a year or two or something. Talk to me about what your earnings per share numbers kind of might be over the next three years or something. Um, they're not going to tell you exactly what it's going to be, but you know, you could get an idea of, all right, but it's not, you know, it, it's going to be higher than what it is now. How much higher could it be? How high could those go? Do you see yourself paying deposit at this level? Do you see yourself, you know, um, these are things that are really move the needle. Whereas much of the like short quarterly stuff doesn't. And it really matters in cases like Cinemark and stuff. Okay. If Cinemark's not going to need more capital if they're, and so that is something that research could be helpful for, but you can find that out too yourself. Um, are they going to need new, new capital? Can they really refinance these things? Stuff like that. Um, I think some things that need access to capital markets and stuff, sometimes the research can be good on that. I wouldn't have a good feel for 
whether the markets are open or not to certain kinds of lending and stuff. And I think others would have a better idea of that, you know. But usually they know a lot about uh, raising capital and M&A. Uh, I would trust their insights on that stuff because, you know, they do that business. That's funny. Whenever you're, you are listening to an earnings call, an analyst will say, just some housekeeping. They're basically saying, tell me what to put in my model. <laughs> just a housekeeping question, yeah. blah, 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 blah. They're basically just substitute that with, tell me what to put in my model. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, why read the IPO or spinoff document? Um, this is, I think, one of the best documents you could read. Quite frankly, mm-hmm. I mean, after the 10K, I think it's the most um, informative and entertaining in a way. Um, it's very yeah. detailed. And it gives a lot of information on the industry. It could say what competitors they have or what they consider to be mm-hmm. competitors. It'll talk about the history of the industry, how it started, what has happened, give you a timeline. Um, it is the longest document that you will find typically on sec.gov. Uh, but it's great because it gives information on how it has evolved um, from the early days to the present. And it's, uh, did you ever read WeWorks? Spin our IPO yes. prospectus. Yeah. I was about to say some of them in recent years have gotten a little strange, and I was going to mention WeWork as an example of that. Yeah. Th- what there was are that? some. That was like, a, I don't know what that was. That was weird. There are, there are some lately that have gotten more into their philosophy and their reason for being and, and all of that a little bit more. It was like um, a Vogue magazine or something. Yeah. Well, part of it is, you know, they also have to. You know, with that, they have to avoid talking about what industry they're in, right? I mean, that's part of it is you can't say, oh, by the way, there's this public company. I mean, I guess it would probably be UK, but there's this company that's been public for decades that does the same thing that we do, um, you know. So yeah, we don't can't put really Regis in that industry. On us. Right, yeah. Um, so, but yeah, discussions of the industry and stuff are really helpful. And also, this is really helpful for companies that have like um, – the industry is not well known or, or something like that. So like, uh, the one that would have been good is if, um, if, uh, um, Swedish match had gone through with their, uh, spinoff of the, of the machine made cigar business, because that, uh, getting data, uh, getting a, a filing on that sort of thing. Now, I don't know exactly what the plan was of where to file and everything with that, but, assuming it would have filed with the SEC, um, that would have been a lot of really good data that we wouldn't otherwise have about the industry and, and things like that, where the discussions are limited at the company level about that particular business unit. Um, so the, those are really helpful. Uh, or one like um, Front Door, Terminex, those things. You know, Some of them have peers, but they don't necessarily have a lot of peers, and it's good to get industry data and um, information about the how the industry works, how their business model works and all that. Um, and that's really useful. You know, a spinoff of like a random restaurant or whatever, you know, we have so many peers that we can compare them to so much information on the industry and how it works. You know, that's a little less interesting than one that's more in its own industry or something. So we work, to be honest, if it had been a real informative one, uh, would have been a good document because we don't have a lot of information on, on different peers. And so how does it work? What are the economics like? It would have been interesting. Mm-hmm. Not why read the, the document pro- turned out to be. Yeah. Yeah. Completely opposite. Uh, <laughs> why read the proxy statement? 
This will be the DEF 14A on Edgar. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good to read it um, to learn about management, uh, understand how much control big shareholders have over the company, and see how management is compensated. So you want to look yeah. for who the managers are, who the owners are, and most importantly, Mr. Jeff, how the owners choose to compensate the managers, dot, dot, dot. Uh, you're mm-hmm. just trying to find out the incentives here. And it's a good way to uh, do that. And it's another long document, but other investors don't read the proxies as much. And it's a good uh, good document to learn more about the company and the manager specifically. Incentives, if there's poison pills, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of that will be in there. Usually I read this document first. I usually go uh, 14A, uh, 10Q, 10K, and then investor presentation if they have that, and earnings call transcripts if they have those. We we often don't because of the small companies we do. The idea being if I read like the 10K first, then you'd be less interested in this stuff because you know some of these details already. And very small companies, can you can put a lot of the information that would have to be in this kind of thing into a 10K, and there actually can be companies that don't have a proxy statement um, that generally means it could mean different things, but it's often going to mean that management or insiders control like 50% of the company or something. There's no need for uh, putting out proxies, but all the information then has to be put in the 10K basically. So you'll get all the information that we're talking about here somewhere. It'll be in some, if it files with the SEC, it's going to be in some document. It should usually be here occasionally in the 10K. Mm-hmm. Uh, why read the 10Q? Uh, the most useful part is to get the exact numbers of shares outstanding. Obviously, that's on the front page. Mm-hmm. Um, get information on the balance sheet. It's a snapshot in time versus the income statement. Cash flow statement is more over a period of time or is over a period of time. Uh, reading the footnotes to the financial statements, um, you know, everyone listening knows why you read the 10Q. I always like when I talk to an investor and I'm like, did you see their earnings? Did you read the quarterly report? Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah, I, I saw the headline, but I'll probably read the quarterly report over the next two or three weeks. I'm like, wow, that's an investor that, you know, really focuses on 10Ks and thinks over the long term, which is interesting. Uh, but footnote yeah. stuff, what is amortization made up of? How quickly are they depreciating assets? How long have they had certain assets? Uh, you know, land um, mm-hmm. on the balance sheet is just checked for impairment. You don't depreciate land. So mm-hmm. if they have it on the balance sheet at years purchased uh or values purchased 30 or 40 years ago that's just something that's really interesting that would pique an interest yeah so 10q has some more detailed stuff uh up to date mostly it's just reading the footnotes and stuff um you know you're gonna have the balance sheet and everything but they put that up on lots of websites now um so mainly little details in the um footnotes and stuff like i said even with the cinemark thing i don't know how much they talk about the national cinemedia thing in any transcripts or presentations or whatever and how they i'm sure included as like an add back to their adjusted ebitda or whatever thing uh and reported results but uh you know it has a detailed note on it in the mm-hmm. um in the 10q uh same thing with companies that uh have any other changes you know i was looking at a company where i just looked at the 10q purely to make sure that they hadn't made a change in an agreement which they might not have to disclose um but under the commitments and contingencies stuff, um, they would have had to include a note and it was the same sentence that appeared before. So it means they didn't change it, but it, I didn't think it was large enough to warrant an 8K. So it was just to get an update on like whether an agreement had changed or something like that too. So then the notes, the notes, the financial statements are very important. That's mm-hmm. kind of the main thing of the 10K and the 10Q is reading all those notes. 
Got it. So that is all eight things. I'm going to upload that presentation uh, to the YouTube notes and the podcast notes. I did do a uh, a poll where I asked for stocks. I said, name a profitable, competitively advantaged business trading at a reasonable valuation for us to go over and do snap judgments on. But we are coming up on two hours. So maybe we will save that for next week. But we got, it looks like over 60 something responses. So lots of stocks. Hopefully they are profitable and okay. have some sort of uh, evidence of a competitive advantage. Do you want people to continue to add to that or not? Yeah, continue to add to it. So go to the post okay. on September 6, 2022 and tell us what you got. But just please, people, I'm begging you. I'm begging you. Please make sure it's a profitable company. Please make sure that it has some sort of competitive advantage. I don't want unprofitable internet, you know, crappy, high multiple. Just come on. If you're listening, you know our framework. Throw us something. We'll throw it up on the screen and we'll do snap judgments because it's been a, a good amount of time since we've done uh, the last snap judgment. And I actually wanted to go through and use Cheesecake, uh, which is a company that we know well okay. to do all this. But, you know, what can I say? We talk a lot. We're coming up on two hours. So <laughs> I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast. As I've said now three or four times, uh, this presentation will be uploaded. Uh, we're doing a revamp of the website. Uh, so it looks a little bit different right now. But uh, to get more information on us, you can hit that Invest With Us uh, tab on the website. Uh, still making changes. So expect there to uh, be changes probably by the time that you go to the website. What do you think about that, Jeff? Look at that. Look oh, at that. Very nice. Looking good. Oh, somebody, wow, asked look if, somebody asked if uh, mm -hmm. these were the only suits that we owned on one of the YouTube videos that oh. we uploaded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we'll just not answer yeah. that anyways i want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us we did use quick fs uh on this podcast and if you do want to sign up for that it's where we pull all the financial data uh tell them that you came from focus compounding i'm thanking you so much for all the support and we will see you in the next podcast take care